1: Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Amado Carrillo was nervous. The feeling was uncharacteristic for him. He had rubbed elbows with some of South America's most feared drug kingpins, and he had a reputation as a brutal boss himself. He paced through his remote safe house, waiting for a call from the federal police commander. The wheels were in motion, but he couldn't be sure the job would actually be completed.
2: Every knock at the door startled Amado. He knew the cost if the plan failed. If his mentor and friend, Pablo Acosta, survived the attempt on his life, he wouldn't just have Amado killed. He would make him suffer.
1: Amado hoped it wouldn't come to that, and as soon as the phone rang, he knew it wouldn't.
2: Pablo Acosta was dead, struck down in a 90-minute firefight with Mexican police.
1: Amado was safe, but more importantly, he was one step closer to securing his control over the Juarez cartel. With Juarez within reach, Amado set his sights on an even bigger territory, the skies. I'm Howell Hargit.
2: And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the ParCast Network. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld
1: and why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them, and how it changed the community around them.
2: This is our first episode on Amado Carrillo Fuentes, a Mexican narcotics trafficker who made over $25 billion smuggling drugs between the early 1980s and the late 1990s. His leadership helped usher in the modern era of Mexican drug trafficking.
1: At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love, let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
2: And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. Amato could have lived anywhere. By 1994, his narcotics trafficking had already given him more wealth than he ever could have dreamed. Estimates had him bringing in tens of millions of dollars
1: per week. But there was something about the village of Guamachalito, the sleepy mountain village of his youth, that appealed to Amato. It was a far cry from the lavish livings of many of his Mexican drug lord peers. He lived modestly in an unassuming single-family home without even the luxury of a swimming pool to cool off during the notoriously hot summers.
2: In fact, the only indications that the village played home to one of the richest men in North America was the string of expensive Lincoln town cars, Chevy station wagons, and Dodge pickups parked out front.
1: Well, that and the parade of armed guards constantly roaming the grounds.
2: In the evenings, Amado would tend to his chicken coop and milk the dozens of cows he kept on the property. These simple joys distracted him from the stresses of running the Juarez cartel, an operation so large and profitable it could have made the Fortune 500.
1: That's not to say Amado didn't allow himself some extravagances. Every week, he would board one of his private charter jets and fly from the quiet Guamacholito countryside to his mansion in the city of Hermosillo, located in the Mexican state of Sonora.
2: Amado's fleet of 747s was his pride and joy. Amassing such an air fleet would have been impossible for anyone else. Only Amado, with his unmatched government connections, could fly around in decommissioned jumbo jets without having them seized by the federal police.
1: The planes were more than mere luxury to Amado. They confirmed the nickname the DEA had taken to calling him, the name that so many Mexicans would come to fear, El Señor de los Cielos, the Lord of the Skies.
2: In February 1995, Amado arrived at his Hermosillo Palace to find a raging party already in full swing. Amado always allowed some of his men to stay there while he was away. The house was so massive, it seemed a waste to leave it unoccupied.
1: To call the Hermosillo home a mansion would be a disservice. With its imposing 10-foot stone walls and spiraling towers, the place looked more like the Taj Mahal than a Mexican drug villa.
2: Amado, dressed in a cowboy hat, a designer shirt, and cowboy boots to match, was not here to party. He looked back fondly on his years spent guzzling tequila and smoking crack with his mentor, Pablo Acosta. But those days were behind him. Tonight, he had business to take care of.
1: Amato gathered his top lieutenants and called a meeting. The issue on the table? The Colombians were hassling him for more money.
2: Since the death of its leader, Pablo Escobar, in 1993, the Medellin cartel had fallen from its place atop the South American cocaine trade. But Amado still had to rely on their protection if he wanted to move any cocaine out of Colombia.
1: And protection didn't come cheap. Each month, Amado sent somewhere between 20 to $30 million to the Medellin cartel to ensure their cooperation. For a while, that was just the cost of doing business. He would rake in twice that much in a week if none of his shipments got seized at the border. But the cartel kept asking for more and more, And it was getting a little out of hand.
2: To add insult to injury, Amado had just learned that Alberto Ochoa Soto, a high-ranking member of the Medellin cartel, had been moving cocaine within the Juarez city limits without Amado's permission. If they wanted to work in Amado's territory, they should be paying him for protection.
1: Amato had learned a great deal from his many kingpin mentors and the cardinal rule was to never let yourself be taken advantage of. Alberto Ochoa was about to return to Ciudad Juarez after a short stint in a Texas prison and Amato wanted to give him a welcome nobody would soon forget.
2: In February of 1995, Ochoa was released from prison. He was driven to the border crossing at the Stanton Street Bridge in El Paso, where he met his attorney, Tarazón Navarro.
1: As Ochoa stepped out and crossed the border into Juarez, Ochoa took a moment to savor his return to Mexico. But before he could even get into his attorney's car, a Chevy Suburban screeched to a halt next to him. Several men with Mexican federal police credentials hopped out, they shoved Ochoa and his lawyer into the Suburban's back seat before they could even yell for help.
2: A few miles away, Amato Carrillo and his men pulled to a stop just off a desert road. They cut their engines, shut off their headlights, and waited.
1: Amato wore his usual urban cowboy attire, dressed for a night on the town. He was in a good mood for a man on his way to kill someone.
2: The Chevy Suburban pulled up after only a few minutes, any longer, and Amato might have gotten worried. Nights like tonight were how wars were started, or avoided. Only time would tell.
1: Amato waited for the Mexican federal police to get out of their car. They shoved Ochoa and his lawyer out of the back seat, bags over their heads.
2: Amato didn't just kill Ochoa outright. He let him plead for a while until the desperate Colombian revealed the location of the secret cocaine stash he'd hidden in Juarez.
1: With that, Amado finished the job. When it was done, he boarded a flight back to his Hermosillo Palace.
2: The next morning, in a storage locker just outside the city limits, Amado located Ochoa's secret stash, 22 tons of packaged cocaine with a value of roughly 3 billion American dollars.
1: The Medellin cartel would not be happy about Ochoa's disappearance. He was the uncle to Fabio, Jorge, and Juan Ochoa Vasquez, the three brothers who were running the Medellin cartel after Pablo Escobar's death, and Amado would be a prime suspect in the sudden disappearance.
2: Amado's closest advisors suggested he send the $3 billion worth of cocaine back to Medellin as a show of good faith. He needed the Colombian cartel for their cocaine.
1: But the Medellin cartel needed Amado's distribution channels just as well if they wanted to move their drugs into America, which is exactly why Amado sent the Ochoa brothers a message claiming he had nothing to do with their uncle's disappearance. As for the $3 billion worth of cocaine, perhaps their uncle had taken off with the drugs himself. If anyone in Medellin had any other ideas about what might have happened, they knew where to find him.
2: Amado wasn't hiding. He knew there was no way that what remained of the Medellin cartel could challenge his air and ground forces not with a Amado's support from the Mexican federal police and national government, both of which regularly received donations totaling upwards of $25 million.
1: Fabio Ochoa's response came back only days later. He wrote, What has happened, happened. We feel for our uncle's untimely death. Perhaps it was bad luck. Perhaps it wasn't. In any case, we're not interested in Revenge.
2: There was no longer a question about who was the most powerful narcotics trafficker in Latin America. Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel had had their time. The 90s belonged to the Juarez cartel and Amado Carrillo Fuentes.
1: When we come back, we'll look at how Amado Carrillo outpaced his mentors to become one of the most brutal narcotics traffickers in Mexican history. Now back to the story.
2: Amado Carrillo Fuentes was born in Guamuchilito, in the state of Sinaloa, Mexico. Sinaloa is in many ways the birthplace of Mexican dope trafficking. It was the third leg in what some call the Mexican Golden Triangle, where the overwhelming majority of the country's marijuana and opium crops are produced.
1: Amado Carrillo was just one of the infamous drug lords to be born and raised in Sinaloa, including Pedro Aviles Perez, considered the first Mexican marijuana trafficker, and Joaquin Guzman Loera, known now as the infamous El Chapo.
2: Amado was born on December 17, 1956, and there remains almost zero record of the next 25 or so years of his life. Some reports claim he was one of 14 children, but American intelligence puts that number at closer to eight or nine.
1: He claimed to have worked as a federal intelligence agent for five years, which may or may not be true. He did have a police badge, but half the drug traffickers in Mexico had fake police badges.
2: We do know how Amado first came to be involved in Mexico's criminal underworld. His uncle, Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo, also known as Don Neto, introduced the 20-something-year-old Amado to the narcotics trade somewhere during the late 70s.
1: Uncle Ernesto was one of the leaders of the Guadalajara cartel. In the late 1970s, Ernesto, along with his partners, Rafael Caro Quintero and Miguel Félix Gallardo, rose to prominence as Mexico's preeminent heroin exporters.
2: Amado wanted desperately to get involved in his uncle's operation. In Guamuchilito, drug trafficking was the only way to earn real money. But, family or not, Ernesto wasn't about to hand over the keys to the kingdom to some ambitious kid who didn't know what he was doing. He sent Amado south, to the state of Zacatecas, where he was put to work tending some of the Guadalajara cartel's marijuana fields.
1: It was grunt work, but Amado took the job seriously. He woke up early each morning, crisscrossing the vast field twice before the morning sun even rose on the horizon.
2: Amato was obsessive about his crop, not so much because of any predilection for botany, but because he realized that this was his uncle's idea of an apprenticeship.
1: His hard work paid off. As the 70s drew to a close, Amato began his ascent up the criminal ladder.
2: Amato's first promotion was far from glamorous. He was tasked with loading 100-pound bushels of marijuana onto trucks and driving the product to safe houses across the country.
1: Major traffickers in Mexico typically ensured safe passage by paying off the local police for the right to move drugs through a certain territory. Ernesto and his partners had a deal with the Sinaloa police Someone else controlled Sonora to the north and Durango to the east, etc. Anyone who moved drugs through another cartel's territory had to give them a cut of their profits.
2: For the most part, this worked out pretty well. But Guadalajara was pretty far south, so if they wanted to get their drugs all the way to the border, they had to cross through a lot of territories and pay off a lot of greedy drug lords. If they could work out their own deals with the police in other regions, they could essentially take over and control the entire western corridor of Mexico.
1: By the time they were done, the Guadalajara cartel would be the most well-connected drug operation in Mexican history, and Amado Carrillo was going to make himself an invaluable asset.
2: The drug transport trips were long and difficult. They were the kind of work usually reserved for farmhands and low-level grunts, not the nephew of one of the cartel's most senior leaders. But Amato didn't mind. It was an opportunity to familiarize himself with Mexico's
1: many trafficking routes. More than once, Amato found himself stopped by unfriendly police, the ones who took their duties seriously. As they searched the car, Amato stood off to the side, wondering how long he would spend in prison if they found the tons of marijuana stowed away in the secret compartments.
2: That is, if he even made it to prison. There was a pretty good chance any given policeman was actually on the payroll of a rival cartel.
1: Fortunately, Amato was never arrested. As the months turned to years, he learned the best routes to travel to avoid police detection. He came to appreciate the experience of low-level drug traffickers in a way that few in cartel leadership ever could.
2: Amato's next promotion was serving as a marijuana smuggler. He used melon trucks and mule carts to transport the product just short of the border, careful never to cross himself. Another smuggler would take over and do the risky work of transporting the drugs into the United States.
1: In Mexico, Amado was protected. Even if he was arrested, the Guadalajara cartel had the connections to make the charges go away. But once he crossed the border, Amado would have to reckon with American law enforcement, a fate he had no intention of tempting.
2: Sometime in 1981, when Amado was 24, Uncle Ernesto introduced him to members of the Herrera family, Mexico's preeminent drug smuggling ring headed by Jaime Herrera-Navarez, a former Mexican federal police officer, the family gained notoriety as the biggest heroin distributor to the Chicago drug market.
1: Amato's next crash course in the drug trade would be tending poppy fields that produced heroin for the Herreras.
2: It was around this same time that Amato began flying twin-engine planes to smuggle marijuana into the United States. It's unclear who first approached Amato with the notion, or where or how he first learned to pilot an airplane, but he immediately took a liking to it.
1: Planes were faster than cars, and they fit much larger loads of cargo. More importantly, driving drugs across the border was risky. One wrong turn and you might run headfirst into a police car. If you fly, the only area you need to secure is the landing strip.
2: Still, Amado typically just flew the drugs up to the border and then left the flights into the US for his underlings. No reason to take unnecessary risks, especially in the early 80s when the Guadalajara cartel was getting into an exciting new endeavor,
1: cocaine. Since the early 70s, Colombian cocaine cartels had mostly been flying their product into Florida, but the DEA eventually caught on to that and the cartels needed a new route into the United States. So in the early 80s, a contact introduced Colombia's Cali Cartel to Mexico's Guadalajara Cartel.
2: Cocaine had never been moved through Mexico on a major scale. But if the Guadalajara Cartel had the network and the infrastructure to smuggle literal tons of heroin and marijuana every year, they could probably do the same with cocaine. Soon, Guadalajara was smuggling coke for both of Colombia's major cartels, Cali and
1: Medellin. Instead of being paid in cash for their work, Guadalajara kept a portion of all the product that came in from Colombia. This was a smart move because cocaine's profit margins were astronomical. They sold some of it through their own distribution network and sold some to other competing cartels around Mexico.
2: Once everyone got a taste of the cocaine business, they were hooked. And the only way to get more of the product was to work with the Guadalajara cartel. In no time at all, Guadalajara was distributing cocaine to every corner of Mexico and using their massive profits to pay off public officials along the way.
1: But how do you move hundreds of kilos of cocaine at a time from Colombia to Mexico to the US in a timely manner without getting caught at customs.
2: Amado Carrillo had the solution. He began flying cocaine shipments up from Colombia to Ciudad Juarez, a small city conveniently located right along the Mexican-U.S. border.
1: From there, the drugs were either taken directly into the United States by ground or by air, or stored in warehouses in nearby Oinaga for their partnered Mexican cartels to pick up.
2: In 1985, Uncle Ernesto stationed the 28-year-old Amado in Oinaga to work under the man who oversaw these warehouses, Pablo Acosta Villarreal.
1: Nicknamed El Zorro de Oinaga, or the Oinaga Fox, Pablo Acosta was one of Mexico's most charismatic narcotics traffickers. His operation, which would eventually be known as the Juarez Cartel, controlled a 200-mile stretch of the border and housed most of the cocaine that came into Mexico. Rumors say he had once killed a rival cartel leader and then dragged his dead body behind his Ford Bronco until it was shredded to pieces.
2: Ernesto had been working with Acosta since the heroin smuggling days, so when cocaine came into the picture, they brought him into the fold almost immediately. Ernesto hoped that by shadowing Acosta, his nephew Amado might learn some of the secrets to the border lord's success.
1: Whatever education Amado had received thus far was nothing compared to what he would learn in Oinaga. Coming up, we'll see what Amado learned from Pablo Acosta's successes and his failures.
2: Now, back to the story.
1: In 1985, Amado Carrillo Fuentes was sent to Oinaga, Mexico to study under the border's reigning drug lord, Pablo Acosta. But for most of the year, Amado's time with Acosta was less about learning and more about partying.
2: Amado was still a young man, then only 28, and his days in the drug trade had been steeped in manual labor rather than glamour and wealth. Now that he had the opportunity to throw down with one of the hardest partying men in Mexico, he wouldn't turn it down.
1: Almost every night, Amado and Pablo went out on the town. A drug baron in a border town was something between a celebrity and a folk hero. Women wanted you. Men wanted to be you and the right amount of money could make almost any problem go away.
2: In the mornings, Pablo and Amado smoked crack as a way to cure their hangovers. Pablo loved the head rush, loved the feeling of the drug pulsing through his bloodstream. Amado was never shy about his own affinity for drugs, and he took quickly to crack, too.
1: In between drug-fueled binges, Pablo taught Amado about his smuggling business, These lessons varied in both depth and coherence, but Amada was able to learn from experience how Pablo maintained control over the Juarez cartel's 200-mile stretch of the border.
2: On a sweltering August day in 1985, Pablo received a phone call from one of his buyers in New Mexico. A shipment meant to arrive the day before had never reached its destination.
1: Pablo had personally sent off the two drug runners in a cantaloupe truck stuffed with 700 pounds of marijuana. He would have heard from his police contacts if they'd been arrested. There were only two possibilities. The runners had either been killed or they had robbed him. And that he could not abide.
2: Pablo located the missing drug runners at a motel outside Oinaga, and they told him they'd crashed the truck just a few miles after crossing the border into New Mexico. Pablo wouldn't believe that until he saw it with his own eyes.
1: Pablo and his men set out for the border to find the melon truck. He brought Amado along for the ride.
2: Amado had no financial stake in the missing marijuana, but he was happy to be there either because of the opportunity to learn from the master or because Pablo had brought along a few packs of crack-filled cigarettes.
1: As they got closer to the border, Amado realized Pablo was serious about seeing the missing truck with his own eyes. He was planning to actually cross the border himself. That would be dangerous for any of them, but Pablo was already a wanted fugitive in America. If anyone so much as saw him, he'd be arrested immediately.
2: Amado quietly told Pablo he might want to rethink his strategy. There was no guarantee they weren't walking into a trap by American law enforcement, and Amado couldn't see the point in risking arrest for a single truckload of weed. Bigger and more expensive shipments are lost or seized all the time.
1: Pablo thought about it for a minute. He smoked another cracked cigarette. And then he told Amato they were all crossing the border together and finding that melon truck.
2: Amato did as he was told. But he made a note to himself that if or when he was in charge, he would just kill the two idiot runners and leave the marijuana truck to the wolves.
1: As they drove down the strip of road where the farmhand said they'd crashed the truck, Amato saw nothing. No melon truck. No marijuana. He was ready to turn around and go home, But if Pablo found out the runners had lied to him, the long ride back would be unbearable.
2: That's when they saw it, the melon truck, its hood buried in a ditch just off the side of the road, exactly where the runners had said. All 700 pounds of marijuana were still intact.
1: Pablo and Amado watched from the hood of their Jeep as their crew maneuvered the truck back onto the road. When the job was done, Pablo pulled the two trembling drug runners aside. Amado noticed sweat trickling down their foreheads, impressive given how chilly it was in the desert at this time of night.
2: If Amado's uncle Ernesto were here, he'd probably kill the men just for the inconvenience they'd caused. But much to Amado's amazement, Pablo didn't even threaten them. Instead, he apologized for mistrusting them pulled out a giant wad of cash, and peeled off 500 American dollars for each of them. Amado watched with astonishment as Pablo sent off the men with a vayan con Dios, God be with you.
1: Amado had already noticed something about Pablo that separated him from other kingpins. Pablo was gregarious. He genuinely cared about people. That's not to say he wasn't capable of great cruelty, but he would rather be loved, not feared.
2: In that moment, Amado drew a very important conclusion about his mentor. Pablo's forgiving nature made him weak, and that one day, it would cost him dearly. He swore to himself never to make the same mistake. Business disagreements aside, Amado and Pablo grew close as the months wore on. As a gift, Amado bought Pablo an expensive gold necklace and a gold watch to match. Pablo wore the necklace everywhere, and the watch never left his wrist until the day that he died.
1: Even more important than Pablo's lessons in business were his lessons in politicking. Amado became well-versed in which politicians were open to the cartel's donations and which were too upright to consider them. Above all, he learned that almost anyone could be bought for the right price.
2: But soon after that, he learned that some mistakes are too costly to be fixed, even by the richest men in Mexico.
1: On April 7, 1985, Mexican soldiers surrounded Uncle Ernesto's Puerto Vallarta Vista. Over a megaphone, they announced, Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo, you were wanted for the murder of American Drug Enforcement Agency agent Enrique Kiki Camarena. Step out of the house or we will have no choice but to take you by force.
2: Inside the house, a cowering Ernesto knew his time had come. That February, the Guadalajara cartel had kidnapped, tortured, and murdered a DEA agent, which turned out to be a very bad idea. The Americans were irate, and they put enough pressure on the Mexican government that even the cartel's political connections couldn't save them.
1: Ernesto surrendered without a fight. And with Uncle Ernesto in prison, his role within the Guadalajara cartel fell to his trusted nephew, Amado Carrillo.
2: Amado had been training for this since his days spent tending his uncle's marijuana fields. He was now a top-tier leader reporting directly to the Guadalajara cartel's acting head, Miguel Felix Gallardo.
1: Amado had already been in charge of transporting, overseeing, and smuggling the majority of Guadalajara's cocaine for months. Now he was also responsible for meeting with the Colombians to make sure the drugs kept flowing uninterrupted. He was the most knowledgeable member of the most lucrative branch of the most powerful cartel in Mexican history.
2: With his newfound responsibilities, Amado Carrillo and Pablo Acosta were now close to equal partners. The two men remained close. After all, their business interests were intertwined, and they were still nightlife companions.
1: But Amado had already learned enough from Pablo, both his successes and his failures. Those failures, Amado thought, included Pablo's front-facing personality and his growing dependency on crack.
2: Pablo was a public person. He was well-known as the padrino of Oinaga, and he loved all the attention that came with that, but it also made him a target. Amado had no interest in being revered or beloved. He just wanted to remain in power, and the best way for him to do that was to remain a mystery. Nobody outside his inner circle would know any more about him than he wanted them to know.
1: Amado was no stranger to crack and cocaine himself, but over the past year, Pablo had been precipitously descending into a crippling addiction. By 1986, it was to the point where he was only really functional for a few hours a day. This confirmed Amado's worst fears. Pablo was weak. He was allowing his addiction to affect his business, and in turn, Amato's business.
2: In August 1986, the DEA found out the location of one of Pablo and Amato's cocaine stash sites. The only logical conclusion to Amato was that someone in their ranks had turned informant.
1: Amato kidnapped six workers who knew about the stash site and tortured them, drilling them for information. By the end of his interrogations, Amato felt confident that none of the six men were the rat.
2: But just to be safe, he killed all six men anyway.
1: When Pablo found out, he was incensed. Not only had Amato killed six innocent men, he had killed six of their own men on nothing short of a whim.
2: Amato's response was, it's better for six innocent men to die than for one guilty man to go unpunished.
1: Amato and Pablo argued about it for days. The kinship the two men had once shared was fraying, and with it went any notion of honor among thieves.
2: Whatever was left of Amato's goodwill towards his once-mentor dissipated in October 1986. Amado arrived at an Oinaga stash house to find Pablo meeting with an American reporter.
1: The American press had recently run some negative reports about Pablo and his well-known criminal enterprises. In response, Pablo, who was still almost constantly high on crack, decided to invite a journalist down to Mexico to set the record straight.
2: Amado was caught off guard, but he tried his hardest to remain friendly with the reporter. He pulled Pablo into a back room, discussed whatever business they needed to discuss, and got out of there as quickly as possible.
1: It wasn't until the article was published over a month later, in December of 1986, that Amato truly understood the depths of Pablo's foolishness. After smoking some crack right in front of the reporter, he'd admitted on the record to killing multiple people. Being a drug trafficker, and bribing the Mexican federal police.
2: Pablo had put a target on himself and all those working with him, including Amado Carrillo. Amado had long valued his privacy, but he feared that if Pablo was allowed to continue speaking to the press, he could not only lose his privacy and his freedom, but also his life.
1: Something had to be done. That's why Amado made the call.
2: Guillermo González Calderóni was the federal police commander in Ciudad Juárez. He was half-American, had a sterling reputation as a serious straight-shooting investigator, and had been sent to Juárez to clean up the city in the wake of widespread government corruption. Just three days after the interview with Pablo was published, Calderóni was given jurisdiction over Oinaga by the Mexican attorney general.
1: The police had known all along that Pablo was a criminal, but now the American public knew about it, and they knew the government was complicit. Calderoni assumed control over Ojinaga with a simple edict, find and apprehend Pablo Acosta Villarreal, dead or alive.
2: But the truth was, Calderoni happened to be as crooked as any officer in Mexico. In fact, he had long-standing connections with drug traffickers, including one Amado Carrillo-Fuentes. So Amado offered Calderoni one million U.S. dollars in hopes of weighing the scale in favor of capturing Pablo dead, not alive.
1: As soon as word of the arrest warrant came out, Pablo fled Oinaga. It took until April of 1987 for Calderoni to track him down in a small village along the Rio Grande by the name of Santa Elena.
2: Calderoni and his troops surrounded Pablo's safe house. Pablo had been on the run for months, passing the time smoking crack and partying with a crew of hangers-on. But when he heard Calderoni's voice on the loudspeaker reverberating through his house, he became as alert as ever.
1: As it happened, Amato's bribe wasn't necessary. Pablo had no intention of being taken in alive. He wanted to go out with a blaze of glory.
2: Pablo and the police traded gunfire for over an hour. When the police finally managed to enter the house, they found Pablo dead with a pistol still in hand. A single gunshot wound to the back of his head had silenced him forever.
1: Amato took the call at a remote safe house of his own. Pablo was dead, which left Amato in control of all of his territory.
2: He didn't enjoy it as much as he thought he might. There would be no champagne tonight, no celebratory party. There was still work to do.
1: Amato had climbed the mountaintop but he knew power makes you a target. And as he spent the next decade watching his friends turn to enemies, the day Pablo Acosta died was one he wouldn't forget. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week as we explore the harrowing assassination attempts and desperate disguise efforts that finally led to Amado Carrillo's death in 1997.
2: You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory.
1: Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review.
2: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Daniel Ocho and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargit.